Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. I remember when I first really heard Louis Armstrong, like really caught the feeling in his trumpet. I was in high school, and for some reason, I had a cassette of his, maybe his greatest hits, I don't know. But it, of course, included his famous version of Sunny Side of the Street with just that crazy trumpet solo that just gripped me. But I also remember something about Louis Armstrong didn't quite sit right with me. There was, you know, the big smile and the kind of bug-eyed look and just an overall style and presentation that felt degrading like minstrelsy aimed at white people. I didn't know it at the time, but it turns out a lot of Black people felt that way about Armstrong, in particular, the generation that came of age right after him in the mid-20th century, alongside a new era of Black politics and culture with just a very different vibe. A conventional wisdom about him set in, but it's one that filmmaker Sasha Jenkins wants to challenge. Jenkins has spent decades chronicling Black music, in particular hip-hop, as a writer and as a filmmaker, and his latest project is a documentary called Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues. The film aims to reveal a side of Armstrong that we haven't really seen, and often using Armstrong's own voice. I spoke recently with Sasha Jenkins about the project and about how a guy who spent his life focused on hip-hop started thinking about Louis Armstrong. Well, the nice people at Imagine Entertainment gave me a call and asked me if I'd be interested. And um, I knew a little bit about Louis Armstrong, but not what I know now. Uh, oh, wow. So I started to dive into the research. And once I realized how amazing this gentleman was, not that I didn't know he was amazing, but, you know, coming up in the 80s, you know, public enemy, black consciousness, you know, what I knew from a distance about him didn't seem kosher to me. Um, so... Doing the research, I learned a lot about Louis Armstrong and was completely blown away by his story. So at first, when you were first approached by the film, were, were you like, nah, he's not really my kind of person? I don't want to say I was like, nah, but I was like, uh, let me look into this. You know, I didn't immediately say yes, uh-huh. you know, but once I, I mean, I'm just very lucky to have gotten the phone call because it's such an amazing project and um, I've done a few films in my day, but none of them have ever received this kind of response. Mm. So, uh I'm glad I didn't say no. Nah. I'm glad I said, <laughs> let me let me look into this, and I'm glad that I did. Well, the film features many prominent voices, including um, Wynton Marcellus, who, you know, shares his own complicated uh, journey in thinking about Louis Armstrong. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of that. My father would always say, man, you have to check Pops out. And I was like, man, I don't want Pops, you know. And in New Orleans, too, it's so much what we call Uncle Tommen goes on playing Dixie, shuffling. In my time, I hated that with an unbelievable passion when I was growing up. There's no way for me to even express 
the type of, of anger and hatred I had toward that type of behavior. So I could not appreciate Armstrong. But when I left New Orleans and I was, I was in New York at that time, my father sent me a tape. He said, man, why don't you learn one of these pop songs? put it on, I started to work on it. Man, I could not play this solo at all. Just the endurance of, of Louis Armstrong. He never stopped playing. It was always up around high Bs. And when we got to the final chorus, I, kept, I called my father. I said, man, I didn't understand about Pops. He just started laughing. He said, that's right. So there's a few things in there. You know, we have that, you know, rejection of some of the style and presentation of Armstrong's early work, you know, that it sounds like you were aware of as well, but then that mind-blowing reaction, right, to his music that so many people have. So let's first spend some time talking about the music itself and, like, understanding that legacy. As you got to know him, what do you think he meant musically to you as somebody who has studied so much music? What what do you think he meant to you? You, you know, when, when Armstrong was setting out to do what he did, black people, and not much has changed, were being groomed to be servants. They weren't being groomed to be artists. To be an artist is a, is a, a position of privilege that many of us obviously didn't have. So what he represents to me is freedom. What jazz represents is freedom. It's we're, we're able to be ourselves and express our feelings without someone telling us what to do or how to do it. That's what jazz is. And if you look at it in that way, there's no civil rights without jazz. Mm. So if you consider Armstrong the leading pioneer of jazz as a movement, then he's a petitioner of freedom. He's the promoter of, of creativity and ideas and going beyond where we were able to go at those times as people of color. So, you know, looking at what a renaissance man he was in terms of, you know, the art that he made, his singing, his humor, his how he dressed. I mean, the guy, I can't name anyone in the modern era that has his level of talent. Although someone at a screening said to me, what about Stevie Wonder? I'm like, all right, Stevie Wonder's up there. <laughs> I, sure. I, I was actually thinking Stevie Wonder's about the closest I can imagine. Stevie Wonder's up there. Yeah. Stevie's up there. But Armstrong just... You know, I don't know. Not, not a normal person. Can we talk about the singing? I mean, you make the point in the film, a uh, number of folks do say that, you know, there's uh, everybody who has sung pop since Louis Armstrong um, is derivative in some way. Could you break down what that means for folks? Like, what, what was so new about his singing style that was so radical? It goes back to this idea of freedom. I mean, a lot of the pop music, particularly created by white folks, was very stiff and very by the books, not very emotional. I think Armstrong brought emotion to the table and he brought a level of unpredictability with vocals. With the other stuff that was already existing at that time, you kind of knew seconds before where the vocals were gonna go, mm -hmm. how they were gonna feel. With Armstrong, it was like a roller coaster ride. He went in there and got on the roller coaster, you didn't know where it was gonna twist or turn. <laughs> And that just changed the game. Like, people didn't sing like that. People sung by the books. He threw the books out. 
And I think that's why he's had such a major influence on popular music, because before him, people weren't singing like that. Yeah. It, and in the horn itself, uh, it, does it all boil down to just that he would hit those high notes like nobody ever before? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's just the high notes. I think it's also his approach to soloing. You know, um, solos oftentimes are improvised and different every single time. His idea was his solos were like a Nike swoosh. It was something to be perfected note for note mm. so that idea of this freedom for the most part but then in the solos developing it from this sort of free idea and then refining it to a point where it was a science i mean i think that idea in and of itself lifts the uh, the precision of music that's made by people i think it's something that is tough to live up to and marsalis wrote him off at first and then when it was time for him to try to played himself he realized how hard it was right i have to say you know what fascinates me when i listen to louis armstrong is like i'll be listening to a record at first and at first it'll sound like so old-timey and then at some point my brain shifts and it feels like i'm in this weird avant-garde space do you know what I'm talking about? And, and, and if so, what am I experiencing there? You know? Yeah, I, I, it's really hard to describe, but it's otherworldly in many regards. It's just, it was something that was so new and original, but really coming from someplace, you know, not coming from a, a song book or something that's written down. It's really coming from somewhere really deep and it's really coming from his life experiences, you know, which can't be duplicated by anyone. Um, and that's what, why I think jazz is so crucial, or, or, you know, most black music is this reflection of and reaction to the environment and what he brought to the table. He brought his whole life to the table and every note that he played. One reason that Armstrong wasn't fully embraced by the generation of black artists and fans that followed him is that he mostly avoided political conversations at a time when politics was very much a life and death business for black people. He wasn't really part of the civil rights movement, at least not publicly. But Sasha reminds us of a moment in Armstrong's history that we rarely hear about. It was when he was already one of the most famous performers in the world and loved by white audiences globally. And in 1957, he was supposed to play a tour of the Soviet Union, sponsored by the U.S. government. But he canceled it in protest of what was happening in Little Rock, Arkansas, where white supremacists were refusing to allow school integration to move forward. And when a reporter asked him about it, he offered some choice words for President Eisenhower. And it was all just very out of line with his public persona. For anybody to call out the president is not an easy thing to do. You know, I wasn't expecting that from yeah. the old me wouldn't expect that from him. I had never heard of it. And I'm very familiar with the history of Little Rock. And I was not familiar with Armstrong's role in it. What do you think was going on for him at this moment. I mean, that it was such a departure from what he had been doing previously in his public role. What, what do you think changed for him that made him stand, speak out in that moment? I mean, I think it's years and years of promoting the American uh, brochure of mm. life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness for all people. And I think he was just tired of it. You know, he's being asked to be an ambassador on behalf of the United States and go to places like Russia and Germany and all over the world. And he's like, you want me to represent America, but America is not representing me. So I think, you know, 
he's always had these opinions behind the scenes but at that point he felt like it was time for me to say something and he didn't just say something about anybody he said something about Dwight Eisenhower um, which again is not something to take lightly I'm talking with filmmaker Sasha Jenkins about his documentary Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues coming up the complicated question of why Armstrong's early work has felt a bit too close to minstrelsy for some fans stay with us This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, Congress has passed a law that will ban TikTok. But why? If you are going to take away an app used by 170 million people, I believe that lawmakers and the government who ostensibly work for us, the American people, owe us more information about why that divestiture is being moved forward. Debating the TikTok ban. That's the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Watching Sasha Jenkins' documentary, I learned totally new stuff about Armstrong's politics and his life away from the cameras. But I still felt uncertain about his early performance style, and I asked Sasha about that. What about that minstrelsy stuff that Witten Marcellus talks about? I have to say, I, I didn't walk away feeling like I had a real answer to how Armstrong himself felt about that aspect of his performance style. What do you think um, uh, he thought about that aspect of his performance style? Do you think he thought of it in the same way? or I don't think he thought of it. I think, mm. that, as it's explained in the film, that the minstrelsy stuff was like a thing. It was like, ironically enough, even Black people are into it. Yeah. It was like a popular form of entertainment, right? He's of the era where that was the popular form of entertainment. It was what was happening at the time, and it was the only outlet that they had. So it was his truth at the time when he was coming up and he knew people who accepted it. He was a man of a different time. He's from 1901 New Orleans, which is like his experience is much different from Miles Davis's. Miles Davis's dad was a dentist. Louis Armstrong's father was not a dentist, you know. So his life years before a lot of these people is much different. And if he didn't do what he did, I call it sort of like a spiritual, tactical, emotional jujitsu to be able to sort of make these moves and keep moving forward. Not many people can do that. Yeah. Having to deal with that kind of crap, that kind of disrespect is very difficult. So there's something to be said about how he handled himself. Does that make him an Uncle Tom? No, it makes him someone who was a survivor who did what he had to do at the time he had to do it. Mm. You you got a chance to use uh, tons of archival tape and pictures from Armstrong's own collection, uh, which he was keeping in his house in, in Queens. He, he turns out to be almost compulsive about recording himself and keeping a scrapbook of his life. And wh- What do you think that was about for him? I think he knew that he was one of one. He knew that he was the first to do a lot of things and that if he didn't document it, who would have? Mm. I mean, because of his archive, because of how meticulous he was, a lot of these things we have today. But who else was out there documenting Louis Armstrong? Nobody. Not to my knowledge. I mean, 
he he made this artwork, you know, with the, these collages of largely from newspaper clippings, but he also had the newspaper clippings and write-ups about him. Some of which where they called him a monkey, like in print, they referred to him as a monkey. So I believe this art that he made with newspaper clippings and stuff was a way to process how he was treated in the media. But he understood, like most people would throw that away or wouldn't save being called a monkey right. in the press. He saved it. So he had a foresight. I mean, in the film, you know, we use these tapes. It's like 40 years, a lot of years of these tapes that he made at home, on the road with friends, with family, where he just spoke his mind or just taped conversations. And it's just the backbone of the film. So you really feel like you're knowing Armstrong because you're hearing directly from him. But at the end of the film, he literally signs off and says, that was my life. There's nothing I was, I was ashamed of. You know, I mean, who does that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Even just for themselves. Yeah. That's why I joke and I say I feel like he was the co-director on this because he just left everything behind that you would ever yeah. need to make a film of this magnitude. They're really remarkable tapes. I mean, to hear someone so someone so famous, so unguarded, like literally in his, you know, underwear in his home with a tape recorder, thinking out loud. Um, yeah. It's an unusual thing to encounter. Um, so you've chronicled the lives of a lot of artists. What do you think is the role of artists in social justice movements? Well, in the case of Armstrong, I don't think he woke up and said, I want to be an activist. He woke up and said that he wanted to be an artist. And for white people, White people can do that. White person can wake up and say, I want to be an activist, or they can just wake up and be an artist. At his time, waking up and saying that you want to be an artist was like unheard of, right? So he woke up, said he wanted to be an artist, but in the process of being an artist, he's up against Jim Crow. He's up against all these things that are anti-who he is. So I'm sure in the back of his mind, at some point he realized that like he, he was in a position to say and do things. But at some point, you just want to be an artist. You don't necessarily want to have the responsibility of your whole nation of people who look like you. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot. If he knew that was the case going into it when he was 14, learning how to become a musician, maybe he wouldn't have done it. Maybe he would have said, man, I got to be in charge of all the black people, too. I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to do this. You I'm know just going to play the horn on the streets of New Orleans and leave it at that. Yeah. If I got to be the, the keeper of all black people, I don't know if I'm going to want to really do this. So the role of artists is to make art. So that's his number one job. His number one job is to be an artist. And through his art, hopefully people can pick up on the bigger themes and things that reflect his life and what he, how, what he wants to change inside of the art. Now, as an artist, if you want to go beyond that with words and actions, that's fantastic. But I don't know that it's necessarily the job of an artist outside of the art that they make to go beyond that. I think that's up to the artist. You've made documentaries on Wu-Tang Clan, on Cypress Hill, on Rick James, um, uh, a complicated man to be sure, and now a Louis Armstrong. Is there anything that ties all this work together for you? It's, you know, Louis Armstrong and Rick James and Rizzo from Wu-Tang, there's not much of a difference. They all come from these environments that are tough. They all come from environments that there isn't much opportunity. And what they do have, though, is their creativity and their intelligence. And they apply their creativity and intelligence to make music. And, you know, people might argue that jazz and hip hop are two different genres. But I've come to believe that when it comes to black music in America, there's no genre. There's just black people reacting to the environment and creating in the environment things that reflect the environment. Yeah. 
film Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues is now streaming on Apple+. Plus. Sasha Jenkins is also working on a series of documentaries about 50 years of hip-hop. Yes, 5-0. And we're going to have him back to talk about that later in the year. So I look forward to it. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Mixing and music by Jared Paul. Production, editing, and reporting by Karen Froman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. And I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. What is, what, what is me- 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 me-